I think it's time that we talk text editors. Oh God. Okay. <laughs> you sound so. I, I'm I'm very skeptical about this topic. <laughs> Maybe we won't do text editors. So this episode is going to be broadcast after the new year in 2018. So I guess we should start by saying Happy New Year, Danny. Happy New Year. <laughs> it's episode 18, 2018. There's a thing for you. That's beautiful. What are you doing for New Year, Alex? Okay, well, this is talking uh, in future tense, of course, where people will be listening to this. Well, it'll be past tense, so I actually will have already done the things that I'm about to say. Oh, that's true. Yes. Yes, that is true. We are recording somewhat early because fresh new year, fresh new start. I'm going to be very busy for the first couple of weeks, so we won't have time to record. Right. So, yes. So, so as, as we record, it is not yet new year. That's right. Uh, That's confusing, isn't it? Well, we've, we've all been here before. So, so. I'm, going to, I'm going to speak in past tense. <laughs> okay. So, uh, on uh, January 1st, yes. 2018, which was... Some some few days slash weeks ago, yes, I uh, spent the day with my family, mm. and um, we tend to, I guess, celebrate New Year in the more Japanese style. Mm -hmm. And for those who are not aware, it's uh, interesting that in Japan, Christmas and New Year, the traditions and the general mood in the air is kind of the the opposite of what it is in the west right where christmas is a time to be with your family and new year is a time to go out with your friends well in japan it's usually the other way around so christmas is a time to be with your friends and new year is a time to go back to your parents home or you know stay with your family and have family members come over and generally it's a very slow paced almost somber occasion nothing like in the west i mean there are countdown parties and stuff for the young kids but generally uh, yeah the countdown isn't really the the important thing there is sort of a, a set meal uh, which is much like christmas as well and often a, a meal that you'll have is the first thing in the morning on on the actual day of new year's day that's right i think interestingly that's also kind of flipped in that with christmas it feels like christmas eve is the bigger day mm. in japan like christmas eve is the day that everyone goes out on dates and things like that. How romantic. Christmas. And, yeah, and then Christmas Day, it's all kind of over. Right. And, you know, I used to get in a Santa hat and stuff on Christmas Day to try and keep the spirit up. Mm. And But there was generally a feeling that I, I was already too late by that point. It's like, <laughs> right. what, what are you wearing the Santa hat for now? It's over. It's already Christmas. Right. Whereas New Year's Day, I feel like, yes, the, it is common to sort of be with the family on New Year's Eve and spend that evening watching very typical TV that tends to be, you know, you get the same sorts of shows on every year. Right. Reflecting on the previous year as well as some sort of comedy shows that are always on and things like that. Right. That's uh, very much a thing that you do. But New Year's Day is more of an event, you know. You get up and you might go, you've got the, the first visit to the shrine. Hmm. And then you might go up, we went up a couple of times into the mountains for our sort of first visit to the shrine, and we might bring up the required accessories and ingredients to make traditional Japanese green tea, you know, matcha tea, mm. Yeah, uh, which we're, we're going to do this year, actually, or we did this year, if we're continuing this past tense farce. Right. Uh, 
we've we've got the matcha and we've got all the the whisk and everything and we are going slash went up into the mountains in california and are going to see the new year in that way so yes that is very much a, a sort of sense in which japan is also the reverse yeah you mentioned the the meal and that's uh you know my wife is a an excellent excellent cook and uh the the meal that you have on the first of january is highly symbolic mm. so every every small dish that is prepared will have some kind of meaning behind its shape or its ingredients or the way that it's prepared and you interestingly the significance at least from where my wife is from which is close to where your wife is from, so potentially similar, mm. they're, they're usually interesting little linguistic word plays. Uh, for example, there's a kind of fish called a tai. Yes. Which yeah, would be, what's, what's that in English? Tai is like... Uh, it's a snapper, isn't it? Red snapper. Yeah, that's the one. And uh, you have the whole fish, tai, and it's tai because it's medetai, which means to congratulate. Right. So... It's sort of congratulations on, you know, the new year. So you have that kind of fish. And my wife will make uh, white miso soup, yep. which has some significance, which I've forgotten. The reason that it's white in it will be round cut carrots and round cut daikon radish. And the round, the, the, the round shape is symbolic of maruyaka, which means kind of chilling living living life round <laughs> you know taking it easy and just rolling with the with the punches i guess i think round shapes are, are fairly commonly used symbolism in, right. in japan and in the east generally right china also has a lot of round shapes yeah i'm not sure that the the symbolism is the same as it is in in Japan, with the idea of maruyaka, meaning round, meaning kind of rounded and... Right. But it also has a sense of completion, right? Right. And perfection and right. things like that. We also have beans, which in Japanese is mame. And mame is another way in Japanese as a wordplay. Mame as an adverb means to do something properly and seriously and thoroughly. Mm. And the idea is that you live properly and seriously and thoroughly. And there are various others that escape me right now, but... Um, they're all basically small little dishes of different ingredients that have some connection with a wordplay, which kind of means, you know, new starts or living life to the fullest or living life in a relaxed, <laughs> round kind of manner. Round. R rounded, I think we would say. Well-rounded. Well-rounded. Right? There you go. There you go. Uh, well, 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 it's a little bit. It's a little different, isn't it? Because yeah. well-rounded means kind of a bit of everything. But anyway... Before, uh, prior to having children, my wife would prepare these things uh, in the morning. On Gen Actually, most of the preparation would be done on December the 31st in the afternoon. Right. So that in the morning of January 1st, you could get up and get straight into it. Now, with currently a three-year-old and an eight-year-old, I doubt that uh, my wife will have time on the morning of January 1st. Uh, I doubt that she had the time. No, actually, she didn't have the time. I know this now because it is in the past on January 1st in the morning. <laughs> so... So uh, we uh, tend to have this symbolic meal for lunch on January. And the visiting the shrine for the first time is something that, again, we used to do prior to having children. The difficult part in Japan is that, um, you know, that when you go to a shrine on the 1st of January, mm -hmm. if it's in a built-up metropolitan area, you usually find that it's absolutely jam-packed with people. Yes. 
I, I did live in Kyoto. I have been to Yasaka Jinja on first first January. That that really is something. <laughs> right. It, it's not really the most. I, I think you do it for the ritual, and you do it for just as something that you do every year. Yeah. Uh, certainly not for the enjoyment or for the opportunity to reflect, because it's a little bit hard to reflect when you feel like you're jammed into a sock drawer. That's my all-purpose analogy for anything involving lots of. Japanese people in very, very close quarters, right. such as commuter trains. Right. Speaking of commuter trains, I just wanted to throw in this, throw this in there. I heard a story, and apparently this is true, that an example of how bad it can get in Tokyo during rush hour mm. is sometimes the trains will be packed so full yeah. that the, the, uh, the windows on the doors will actually pop out. <laughs> can, can you imagine that? I mean, it must be such a... That must be while the train's moving. That must be no, terrifying. No, I don't think it would happen while the train... I think it's when... Because normally they have people who are pushing... Yeah, they've got the the, guy, the sort of platform attendants pushing you in. Right. Have you ever experienced that? I have been one of the people being pushed in by the attendant. I have. Yeah. Any listeners out there who are planning a trip to Japan, heed this advice because it will, uh, it will make your ride on a standard Japanese rush hour train that much more comfortable. There are a number of things to remember. Number one, always, always enter the train backwards. Yes. Never go in forwards into a packed Japanese commuter train because there's like a kind of a line down the middle of the train where people are back to back. But other than that, people usually face outwards when they go into the train, which means that if you're facing forwards as you go into the train, a packed commuter train, you're going to be a few centimetres away from somebody's face, <laughs> basically. And it's also part of the part of the technique. There's a bit of a, a knack that you learn of reaching your hand up to the bit of metal just above where the door opening is. Right. And using that to sort of pull yourself in. Backwards. As you face outwards, you're pulling yourself in backwards. Right. And sort of pushing back the people who are already in. Right. And then you just sort of keep the pressure on that area just above the door right. until the doors have completely closed. And then you can let go of the pressure and the pressure from behind you will push you back into the door, but it's closed by that point. So right. then, the, then the windows pop out. <laughs> but, and, then, um, <laughs> and then the windows pop out. It can get pretty bad. I remember that was the one thing that I remember is having to enter backwards. The second thing that's very important is I used to find myself on the really seriously bad trains, mm. take your watch off. Oh, because okay. <laughs> take your watch off because you get crushed so bad that sometimes your watch can actually hurt quite a lot. That, that was a particularly bad morning. I see. I've not experienced that one. Uh, one of the more difficult things, this is um, kind of a little bit awkward to talk about, but one of the more di- difficult things is if you're holding some kind of briefcase, mm. as in some kind of bag that requires you to hold it with your hand, Yes. you need to be extremely careful because you've got people's bums Yes. <laughs> Squashing into you, yes. basically into your knuckles. You want to lift that briefcase up a bit. Yeah, you need to angle your hand so that it doesn't seem like you are trying to, you know, grope somebody. Unfortunately, people groping people on trains is a common enough problem that you do actually need to be quite careful not to be mistaken for that because there's there's every chance that you were. That's right. That's actually um, one of the, the changes that I noticed in the, what, 16 years that I was living in Japan mm. was that awareness of a problem with that kind of molestation mm. on commuter trains, packed commuter trains, um, was definitely, I could definitely notice it increasing the, long, the as I stayed there. When I first got there, 
it was kind of like a uh, kind of like a sort of a, a boy's joke, you know, mm. sort of groping women on the train. That was in 99 when I first got there. And I, the, the longer that I stayed there, you know, I started to see posters. Uh, in Japanese, the word is chikan, which basically means to feel somebody. And um, it'll be like posters. The most famous one in West Japan would be chikan wa akan. Akan is uh, Western Japanese dialect for something that you shouldn't do. Mm. So chikan is not on, basically. Yeah. And, um, chikan wa hanzai is the, is the most common I saw, I think. Right, which is, it's a, it means it's an, a criminal offense. And the, it, it's really, you know, it, there were, I remember that when I was there, there were a number of pretty serious problems with it because it can happen so easily. You can actually sort of be put into that situation where your knuckles are touching somebody else's rear end. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not your intention to be actually touching them, but you're, you know, you're being, you can't actually move your arms. Your right. arms are kind of wedged right, right, downwards right. at that point. And I remember that there were a number on TV, I can remember a number of situations where there'd be problems with, on both sides, you know, there'd be problems with men doing it, obviously, but there'd also be problems with women trying to frame men for doing it. Or mistakenly, you know, as you say, or it was an accident. Yeah, but I can remember um, seeing a news story about a problem with some women actually misleading station staff and saying that they were uh, molested on a train despite the fact that they actually weren't and and getting people in trouble with that and Mm -hmm. so one of the solutions that the rail networks decided to try out was having women only train cars yes and uh you know that's i guess just sort of an example of how serious it could get that that you'd need to have a carriage that's designated specifically for women only yeah i found that really weird when i first moved to japan but I don't know, I fairly quickly decided it was a good idea after all. Mm. Like it felt at first, because it's it's obviously quite foreign, you know, we don't have anything like that in, in the UK or anything. Right. And at first it seems like that's ridiculous. You're forcing them to go in this special carriage just because you can't deal with the root cause of the problem. Right. But actually it's like, well, they are trying to deal with the root cause of the problem, but... It's not that easy. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a reasonable sort of middle ground. This is a, a reasonable thing to do in the interim, you know. Right, right. And in the meantime, they have done a lot of work to make people more aware of it. They've got posters up on television. It is a commonly used plot device in dramas. It's commonly called attention to in, in talent shows and the like. Mm. I think they have really put an effort into trying to educate people. And it sounds ridiculous that people need to be educated that it is bad to feel people up on a train. Right. But, you know, evidently they do. Like, you can't just put your fingers in your ears and say, well, they should be better than that. Like, mm. clearly they're not. So you've got to <laughs> you've got to try and do something, and it, it does start with awareness, mm. I think. So, that, yeah, I think they've there are still a lot of problems there, but things have changed a lot, and people are much more willing women are much more willing to come forward about it now because they didn't used to be mm. you know they used to just that's right quietly put up with it and and just be quiet and then get off at the next stop and get on the next train or whatever right you know that's not really the case anymore like i think there's mm. uh, well i'm sure there are people who would do that but i think it's much more acceptable now to 
kick up a bit of a fuss if something like that happens, mm. which is good. And pe- and people will be more willing to stand up for you if they see it. I think. Yeah, I mean, on the um, uh, on the positive side of the Japanese train system, anyone who's listening who has not yet had the experience of going to Japan, definitely, or well, you will get on a train, but try riding at the very, very front and watch the driver. Mm. They take their train systems so seriously and there is so much pride and so much it's like a, it's kind of like a romance around you know trains and train drivers and the train network right and you can feel it you know when i mean the they take the train network and the train schedule so seriously that you know quite famously when japanese trains are late by around you know 4 to 5 or like even 1 or 2 minutes they'll start actually coming on the the pa and actually uh apologizing to the people waiting that right. the train is now delayed by one minute. Right. I mean, <laughs> you know, if in Adelaide you get cases where the train just doesn't turn up. <laughs> or it just goes past. <laughs> That's right. It just just forgets to stop. That's happened actually uh, many times. Anyway, yeah, there's so much pride that they take in their transition, train system being on time, being reliable, being comfortable for the most part, obviously aside from rush hour when that's not actually physically possible. But, you know, inside the trains are extremely clean, very high-tech, as I said, very comfortable, quite quiet on the newer trains. Very smooth. Extremely fast. It's it's very different on the Cal train. (laughs) So strange. Like there's, it's going so slowly and yet it's shaking about the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. And um, the other amazing thing that I think if you've ever commuted in Japan, one thing that you will love is is because when things are working well, the timetabling and the scheduling is configured so perfectly that your train will arrive at one station and the most frequently made train changes will be set up so that you only have to cross the platform and you only have to wait like about 60 seconds. Right. So, And in many cases, there'll be, you know, the most common change that people will make, that destination train will be waiting with its doors open on the other side of the platform as yours rolls up. So all you have to do is just walk straight across. And that's that's set up like that in, in many, many locations around the city, making commuting very, very efficient. Mm. It's really, really fantastic. Uh, probably there are very few train systems in the world that could rival the reliability and the just the, the yeah the the romance and the the esteem and the convenience and the convenience of course um with with japanese trains and yeah yeah it's mirrored of course by the the japanese train hobbyists who are just as just as hardcore as you could probably imagine for a, a country with such a hardcore train system right and and such a People who get into things in Japan, whatever that thing may be, they very much get into it. Right. I think. Yeah. You see, you see these guys, um, predominantly male, predominantly guys. You'll see guys. Uh, they tend to wear the same clothes. They'll be wearing like uh, checked shirts and kind of photographers' vests, <laughs> and they'll be at the very end of the station, there with you know four hundred mil massive pro spec zoom lenses mounted on heavy tripods mm. burning through frames per second at getting the, the perfect shot of these trains as they leave and and um, arrive at stations and uh you know they'll they'll be like generally in groups and one of them will have the the train timetable on his on his phone or, or at the actual book and uh you know the JR network is the one that has the most diversity of different train engine models mm. because the the freight trains in Japan also use the the JR network oh, rail lines. Right. 
So therefore, you know, you'll see also the, the long distance trains that go out in the countryside, the diesel trains, they will also use the JR rail network, which is a narrower gauge than the private networks, which is wider. Oh, I see. Didn't know that. You didn't know that? Yeah. All of the all the private networks in Japan, they use a wide gauge and it's all the same. Mm-hmm. So they can actually actually run on each other's tracks and they do in many parts. For example, Sanyo railways and Hanshin railways in West Japan, they run on the same tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, JR is a narrower gauge and they um, uh, obviously they have to run independent of all the private ones, but they go out into the countryside where uh, you get more of the diesel engines and there's less of the electric... Um, there's a technical name for the wires that run above a train line, and I don't know it. Mm. But I can picture what you mean. Those those wires that run above, and the train's got a little yeah. sort of almost like an antenna sticking up that connects to the wires. And there's a name for that too, which I've forgotten. I have to ask my son. Right. He's pretty good with this stuff. Right. <laughs> anyway, if you have the opportunity, get on the front of a train and watch the train driver. They have this really neat thing that they do where they, uh, in order to to make sure that the train is running reliably, they will point with their finger at train signals as they're passing. And they call it yubisashi uh, kakunin, uh, which means pointing finger confirmation. And the idea is that rather than just lazily glancing at a signal as you pass it, if you point your finger at it and you read out aloud what the signal means, mm-hmm. that will help you notice it i guess it's it's not actually just limited to signals it's everything Mm. their entire process is vocal they point at each button or lever or whatever it might be before they do it right and it's very explicitly designed to keep them mindful of what they're doing right so you don't just get into the sort of go on autopilot and just start doing things because you're used to doing them right and then you might accidentally forget to press one button or whatever right you you know you very consciously point at each thing say what you're about to do and then do it that's right and then then it's the same thing with all the attendants on the platforms as well and when the and the, the you know the driver in the train before the train is about to leave they lean out the window and they point in the direction the train is going to go and it's very choreographed. Right. And it's quite something to see. And it looks kind of weird. Mm. And, you know, you'd feel a bit awkward doing it. <laughs> so, you know, you try to introduce that system in England. I can't imagine people just going along with it. They're just like, oh, this is stupid. Yeah. But it, you know, it, it gives them a consciousness about what they're doing. And it keeps them right. mindful about what they're doing. Right. And it's interesting. Can you imagine doing that? like in your office, like come in and, and sort of standing up, pointing at your computer and saying, right. open lid, right. power button, right. username, <laughs> password, well, yes. dot. <laughs> Things would move a lot more slowly. Yeah. So along with uh, molestation that we mentioned previously, the, the other big problem that Japanese train network, networks have to deal with are suicides, mm. sadly. And it's a, it's, it's a serious problem because, you know, there aren't many things that can can disrupt the the extreme reliability of the Japanese train networks. And, but one of the main things is a fatal accident with a person. Mm. And that's uh, it's, it's pretty serious business because if you look at the statistics across the country, I, I don't remember, I think the last time I actually, actually looked it up was like something like 10 years ago, but it was something pretty horrific. It's like one person every 20 minutes, mm. just if you average it out. Across the country. Yeah. And... It, interestingly enough, it tends to always be the JR networks. Yes. 
Yeah. Is that is that common across the country? Because I de- I certainly know that between I know from experience that between Kyoto and Kobe, mm. it tends to be if you go by JR, you've got a much higher risk of having your train delayed be- because of suicide and we've actually made decisions based on that like if we've had a, a bus that we need to catch in Kobe that we're sort of in a right and we don't we absolutely don't want to miss this bus even though the Hankyu train is a bit slower mm. there have been times where we've taken it because there's a lower chance it will be delayed by a suicide which is yeah sort of horrifyingly banal in a way but I, I've heard and these are from Japanese friends who told me mm. train experts and I'm not sure I can't vouch for the the validity of this but I've heard that the reason for it is that if you suicide on a private network, the network has the right to right. fine your family. They charge your family, yeah. Huge, huge amounts of money, basically for you know all the tens of thousands of, especially on the JR network, where they're all connected. The private networks uh, also, you know, they have um, a lot of them. Are, like for example, the Hunky one that you mentioned is a private mm. network in in West Japan and. Uh, Viewers, astute viewers, no listeners of Station Thirteen will will hopefully recognise that our our Station Thirteen logo, our emblem, and if you go to Twitter and um, I think you got it on Reddit perhaps as well, and on our website, yeah. I think it's not on the website. I've got it on the YouTube. Oh, it's not on this. Yeah, we have a actually um, the, the the kind of purple maroon coloured train that you see there is actually a hunky train. That's because that's the one that we used to catch together. Although that station is Katsura Station, not Station Thirteen. But never mind. Never mind that. Uh, that's uh, <laughs> trivia there. But the uh, yeah, the private networks will actually fine huge amounts of money because obviously uh, when there are these kinds of disruptions, there are just thousands and thousands of thousands of people who are inconvenienced by it. Especially you know when you come to set up your life uh, and your day-to-day schedules revolving around uh, sort of a, an expectation that the trains are going to be absolutely reliable to the minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you have these kinds of situations, it really throws things into disarray. So JR finds a lot less. Oh, right. Yeah, no, actually, now that you mention it, I think I've heard that before. They both, I mean, JR still finds a lot. Mm. The fines are high wherever you do it. Right. And I think you know, in part, I think that is to discourage doing it, right? Mm. But it's also because it does it does cost the company a, a lot of money, and they have, yeah, you know, they it's all set up for it. It's so the thing when you first get there and the first time it happens, uh, it's obviously very sad. Almost a sadder thing is the way that you become inured to it over time because it is yeah. so frequent that you know by the end of my seven years living there if there was a suicide on the tracks which you can recognize by the the euphemism that they use of a i think it's a a person related incident Mm. i think is the way that they phrase it right and you know at first you're like oh that's very sad and and by the end there is a sense in which you're kind of rolling your eyes and going oh train's going to be late and i've got to get out and change to the other quite often there'll be like if the suicide happens on jr there'll be a nearby hankyu station right and jr will pay for your ticket on the hankyu line Mm. and vice versa so you get off the station at whatever station you happen to be at you know when this suicide happened yeah and they'll have people at the ticket barriers giving you a little slip that you can give to your boss to prove that you were legitimately delayed by a suicide <laughs> right. 
<laughs> right, because you wouldn't want to be lying about that. Now, <laughs> no. And they'll also give you a voucher that you can then take over to the Hankyu station, which will be maybe 10 minutes walk away. Mm. And then you can get on another train to take you where you want to go. Right, right. Yeah, it, you're right. And you, you do get to the point where you completely forget, hold on a moment. Somebody's just died, right? You know, and it's kind of like, oh, yeah, another oh, another bloody, uh, you know, another another <laughs> human incident on the train line. Now I'm going to be late, and it's messed my whole day up. Yeah, I mean, they're really trying hard to figure out ways to prevent this, mm. and there are a number. I mean, the, the root cause of the problem is, of course, not the train lines or, or anything. No. It's it's just the sheer pressure that so many Japanese. Usually, Japanese working professionals are under on a day-to-day basis that mm. creates these kinds of, you know, um, psychological issues. However, the things that they are trying to do to, uh, you know, uh, lessen the frequency of these kinds of accidents, um, there are there are various things. Like, um, obviously, you've got the the technological approach where you have uh, various stations that have like gates, like double gates, so that you have a platform gate. And then when the train is behind it with the door, of course, perfectly, immaculately lined up at the, exactly the right spot. Mm. You know, the, the train, the platform gate will open and then the train gate will open behind that. Therefore, meaning that, you know, when the, the train is not at the station, there is a gate there to stop people from jumping off. Mm. The other thing that you may have noticed at some stations, they'll have actual mirrors on the other side of the platform. Mm. So that works in cases where you've got a central platform that runs in between two train lines going in opposite directions mm. and you've got a wall you've got a you know a wall train line platform train line wall mm-hmm. on that wall they'll put mirrors there so that uh, people who are considering it will be looking at themselves as they're mm. standing there on the platform and the idea i guess the psychological hypothesis there is that that will help you uh, literally reflect right. on your position what it is that you're doing one thing that's important to point out and this is also kind of sad as well, is that it's not always suicide. And the other big, big cause of human-related train accidents is, unfortunately, alcoholism and people who are... Not alcoholism, I suppose people who are drunk. And that's that's also quite serious. And there's one very simple change that they made in a lot of Japanese train stations that you probably noticed yourself because when we left Japan, it was starting to become more and more common in more stations that... I'm not sure if you noticed, but mm. they found by look observing hours and hours of uh, platform footage of people, uh, drunk people who fall off the platform into the on, uh, oncoming train, mm. they found that one of the main causes is that people who are drunk, they'll come down to the train platform mm. and they'll sit on the seat and the seats used to be uh, always facing outwards, yes. yeah. which means when they hear the announcement that the train is coming, They'll stand up, but they'll stumble forward and fall right onto the tracks. So what they did was actually rotate those seats so that they're not facing forward, but they're actually facing along the platform, basically, so that you'll be looking basically in the direction that the train is coming or the direction that the train is going. So when the announcement goes and you stand up in your drunken stupor and you fall forward, you don't fall anywhere. You basically fall along the platform rather than falling off it. That apparently has been incredibly successful in lessening the uh, frequency of train accidents related to people who are intoxicated. Mm. So that's great. That's good work. It's so, it's sometimes it's simple things, isn't it? <laughs> like, yeah. Someday you see these things and you're like, it's amazing that we went for so long before somebody sat down and watched footage of this and realized that something as simple as 
turning the direction of a bench by 90 degrees could save thousands of lives. Right, right. Yeah, it's actually um, alcohol in Japan is, it's, uh, you know, I think it's fairly well known that um, alcohol in Japan is sort of deregulated to the point that you can just buy it in vending machines mm. on the side of the road, which, uh, you know, in many countries, uh, Sweden specifically, that would be just unheard of, completely shocking. Right. And uh, yeah, it's interesting the, the ease with which you can acquire alcohol and how that relates to the frequency of these kinds of problems with intoxicated people. Well, yeah. My point here is that I don't know how much the ease with which you can get your hands on alcohol, I don't know actually how much that directly equates to problems with intoxicated people. Yeah, I suspect not much. I don't know either. Obviously, the age uh, which you're allowed to drink alcohol in Japan is... 20 which is mm. older than the uk and younger than america mm. but it's there obviously there's no way to test that at a vending machine so yes younger people could just get a beer out of a vending machine right i think they would be turned down in shops if they you know if you went and you were yeah. too young and you tried to buy alcohol you would be turned down but the problems with alcohol are not problems with youth drinking so much in fact i would say right sort of youth binge drinking and underage drinking is a much bigger problem in the uk than it is in japan right the, the problems in japan as far as i can tell mostly start when you finish university not even during university when you finish university and you go into working life right and you find that at a lot of social events you are somewhat encouraged just maybe putting it too lightly pressured mm. to drink more alcohol than you may be comfortable with you're not given right the sort of freedom to just decide for yourself you know there's very much a pressure to to keep up with everyone else right right and that seems to be what leads to this culture of of you know problematic mm. drinking but it doesn't i i don't i from what i've seen i see far less underage drinking in Japan than I do in the UK. Mm. And I don't feel like it's anything to do with access per se. Right, right. Yeah, I, I agree with you. The issue of that kind of business drinking um, is, yeah, it's it's a pretty serious thing because communication in a Japanese corporation can, in certain situations, be very, very difficult at best. And there's hierarchy, strict hierarchy, and it's hierarchy about everything. Mm. You know, it's not just how long you've been in the company. It's also gender, sad to say, but it's true. You know, it's also gender. Is, is in, um, There's a hierarchy with that. There's a hierarchy with departments. There's a hierarchy with your role, regardless of how long you've been in the company. Age. Age, of course, yes. And there's, there's a hierarchy all over the place. And basically, you know, the, learning that hierarchy and learning the appropriate channels and the ways to communicate issues and opinions and dealing with conflict of opinion uh, and dealing with your own, you know, where, you, for example, you disagree with what your superior has said. How do you deal with that? Or you're having to do something that you personally don't agree with and you think you know a better way to do it. Mm. You know, how, how do you deal with that? All these things come with protocols and it can be very, very stressful. Now, what kind of helps in a funny way, in these situations are these sort of after-hour drinking traditions. Mm. And it helps kind of because, you know, just the nature of 
the effect that alcohol will have tends to be that people loosen up a bit and those uh, protocols become less critical. And interestingly, although everybody knows and everybody understands that drinking with your boss or drinking with your colleagues after hours, the the kind of business that goes on there is just as relevant and just as significant Mm. as the kind of business that goes on in work hours. Despite that, the the presence of of alcohol kind of makes it somehow a little safer. Well, it's kind of a catch-all excuse. It's things that would be absolutely unacceptable Mm. during the day (laughs) are, you know, almost anything goes. You can just say, Mm. oh, I I was drunk. (laughs) And it's like, oh, yeah, fair (laughs) enough. Right. Yeah. I think that um, there are certainly lines there. You know, I mean, I wouldn't say that anything goes, uh, you know, when you observe, for example, uh, you know, I've had the privilege, privilege, wonderful experience, fascinating experience of being at many of these kinds of things in, in different industries in Japan, observing the way that not only colleagues, but the way that, you know, like a vendor and a client mm. would deal with each other. Mm. In, at a drinking situation, mm-hmm. and there are definitely lines, and there are definitely you know limits that you don't you don't cross. Sure. However, there is that kind of again, despite it being just as significant as the business discussion you had just an hour ago in the office, there is kind of that feeling that we're here to enjoy ourselves a bit more. You know, we're here to relax, even though actually it can, it can be just as tense as the you know the proper business negotiation that happened right. before it. But I think that is it's a conscious decision. That's why these business meetings are often paired with a a sort of party in the evening is because right the this very strict set of rules that you have to follow during the sort of official business meeting mm. is a hindrance and everyone knows it and everyone knows right that if that's all you do it's going to take ages to get anything done right so you have to have this sort of drinking party afterwards in order to finish the job like right. <laughs> it right. just can't be done without it you know <laughs> right yeah it's uh it is it's a wonderful side of japanese culture i use wonderful in in i, I guess just the the fascinating way that it's put together you know that a meeting with a client mm. it can be you know when you run through the steps that take place in a typical client meeting in a japanese corporation I use specifically the word corporation because the larger the company becomes, the more ritualized these things become. Mm. There'll be, uh, say, say for example, you and I and our superior are to meet our client who's coming to our office. You know, prior to the client coming, there'll be a pre-meeting where you and I and our superior, three of us, will get together and we'll discuss what's going to be talked about right and we'll discuss what kind of things we may be asked by the client how we're going to answer them all that kind of stuff then you know the client turns up normally the client will turn up two or three minutes early and i remember that when i was doing consulting work i was kind of educated about all of these things uh, by my superior at the time who would say you must like if your appointment is at three o'clock you arrive at 256 and you call in at 257 mm. call in meaning you know you usually you'll go to these large corporations and uh, there'll be like a just sort of a counter with a phone on it and you you pick up the phone and you dial the the general secretary number or whatever or the the person that you're you've come to meet 
and then they'll come out to get you so that by the time you sit down, it's about, um, you know, about just on, on the dot of when you're supposed to start the meeting. Normally, you go into the meeting room, so the client will come into the meeting room. Sorry, no, we'll go to greet the client at the front of our company, and usually at that point, there'll be exchanging of business cards, which is involved with a lot of bowing, and uh, there are two cool techniques which my boss taught me for um, exchanging business cards. There's the single duplex and the full duplex. (laughs) (laughs) The full duplex is where you hold your business card with in between your curled up pointer finger and your thumb, Mm. kind of like you are holding a game controller. Right. With both hands. With both hands. Facing me. It must be facing me so that when I get it. Facing the person I'm giving it to. Yes. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Facing the person that you're you're giving it to so that when they receive it, they can read it straight away and they don't have to turn it around. Of course. And and you you hold it with both hands. And of course, you bow at a slight angle Mm. as you're giving it. Mm. And traditionally, what will happen in full duplex is the the person who receives the card will then look at the card and then hold it in their one hand while they get their card and do the same thing, mm. giving the, uh, their card to you. So that's full duplex. Mm. No, sorry, that's single duplex. Full duplex is a really nifty thing that you can do in certain industries where, imagine this, so if if we're mirror images of each other and we're both holding cards mm. with our thumb on the right-hand corner with our right hand, we, and if we're both facing each other doing that and you have your left hand up mm. ready to receive mm. and you both approach each other, you will give and receive at the same time. Oh, Hence, full duplex. Right. <laughs> I don't think I've ever encountered that. I mean, because the other person's got to be ready to do that as well. Yeah. So this is a, in certain industries you can do it and it's really fun and it's, it's very, very efficient. <laughs> Basically, if somebody comes at you, you see them approaching you with the single duplex, meaning they're holding their card with both thumbs uh-huh. ready to give it to you if you approach them with your card facing them held with your right hand mm. facing them with your left hand open mm. ready to receive their card mm. they will instinctively switch to full duplex mode <laughs> and they they will let go of their card with their left hand so that they can receive yours and you can do the 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 exchange the give and the receive at exactly the same time uh-huh. and it's really great and it, it's very quick and when you do that you receive each other's cards and the first thing you must do regardless of your duplex settings the the first thing you must do is make a comment on the chinese characters in the person's name right or i mean make a comment on the card one one easy one standard thing to do is the chinese characters and the person's name, but saying like, "Oh, Tanaka, this is a very common right." Name. Yeah, like there are situations <laughs> where that's just not going to be an interesting conversation. So <laughs> you can, you, you know, you can look at the neighborhood of the address that they've got written on it, for example, right. and go, "Oh, you're at that office. I know that office. I went to that meeting once." Right, right. Or you can, you know, you, you generally look for something on the card that you can pass comment on. Right, I think. right. Then, uh, so we will take the client, the three of us would then take the client. It's important that you and I, this is at least what I uh, what I learnt, you and I are always positioned sort of behind our superior. Mm. And that can get kind of tricky <laughs> because depending on the, the configuration of the hallway or the room uh, the, leading into the meeting right. room, it can be kind of difficult to always be pivoting around so that you're kind of locked to the <laughs> the, the position behind your uh, yes. superior. You'll be surprised to hear that we didn't follow that convention at our company. <laughs> no, our company was a bit of an exception to all of this. But yeah, so then you go into the meeting room. Now, there is protocol 
for where in the meeting room the client should sit and where you should sit, mm. depending on whether it's like home or away, <laughs> depending <laughs> on if, if you're the client going to your vendor's office or if your vendor is coming to your office, which is obviously the more common situation. Right. There is protocol about that, about whether, because generally the table will be facing such that one of you will be looking at the door mm. and there's protocol about that, but I've forgotten what it is. Anyway, so you'll do the meeting and the meeting will usually involve a lot of um, uh, sucking air through your teeth like this as if you've just kind of put your hand into a pot of boiling water and <laughs> and um, that that's, that's a way to say that's going to be problematic. You will never say that something is impossible. Mm. You will tend to say that it's, it's very, very uh, complicated. Right. The, the other funny one is the, the fascinating thing in Japanese. I just have to put this in here for... Uh, the Japanese language learners out there. This is so fascinating. In Japanese, if you want to say that something, for example, if you want to say something negative, so something cannot do, right? So can do is dekimasu mm. or dekiru. Mm. So cannot do is dekimasen. And in Japan, Japanese, when you want to change that, you the ending of the verb changes. So it becomes dekimasu changes to dekimasen. Yeah. Well, in uh, Japanese business situations, it's often considered not a good thing to come across as sounding negative, right. even if what you're saying is essentially grammatically negative. Right. So they, they have this ridiculous kind of uh, suffix that they'll add on to the end of negative words, which is actually a positive verb, right. which means that something is negated, right. and that is deki kanemas, which is a positive way of saying that something cannot be done. <laughs> it's just like that's the level to which you need to be very careful with protocol and what you're saying and how you're saying it. Right. Like you, you're basically saying, no, we can't do that. But to say, no, we cannot do that, you're using no and not, right. therefore that's negative. Right. So imagine if in English there was a way you could say, can you do this? And you said, yes, we are very challenged in doing that. (laughs) Yes. The doing of that would be negated. (laughs) That's right. The doing of that is negated. So therefore that makes the other person feel, oh, well, that's not so bad then because it doesn't sound negative. (laughs) Anyway, back to the meeting. So uh, the meeting will um, come to a close usually with not much actually being decided. And... um, at that point, you if it's an afternoon meeting, yeah, you, you have the opportunity to, uh, of course, you will have pre-warned your client or vendor that, you know, you, after this, why don't we go out for a drink or something? And I think uh, one of the, potentially one thing that might make things a little bit easier is that, you know, often at Japanese drinking establishments, you may not always be facing directly to your the person that you're talking to, you may be at a, a counter, both facing the same direction. Mm. And that tends to make things a little bit easier because it's less confrontational, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I don't really know. Anyway, it's a beautiful thing, Japanese business culture. There's so much, so much to it. And there's so many things that you can do wrong. You know, there's so many ways to make a mistake. Mm. And, you know, you, I've worked with people who are obsessive about every little detail. You know, when you, if you're a vendor leaving your client's building, mm. you must go out backwards. You have to go out backwards. That means that you're bowing, facing them. You don't turn your backs on them until you get outside. If it's absolutely freezing outside, you don't put your coat on 
until you get outside the door because mm-hmm. it's considered rude to kind of be standing there kind of shuffling into your coat <laughs> as, uh, as the client's just waiting there. And one thing that I'm sure you've experienced is the classic, the classic elevator exit, which never goes well. <laughs> I, I, have, I have been to, having conducted interviews where I am the interviewer and we have candidates coming in for positions, both you know, Japanese candidates and foreign candidates as well. But, and also, yeah, and we've had sort of vendors and things coming to us as well. Yes, I have, I have done the elevator goodbye many times. Mm. And you're right. There is no non-awkward way to do it. You almost wish you could get like a turbo switch for the door <laughs> where it's like, no, just make the doors close immediately. Like right now, don't leave them open. Don't, there's nobody else coming. <laughs> right. Like just close the doors immediately and get them out of here. Right. Yeah, you better, we better explain uh, how the elevator exit works. You, you go ahead. You, you do the honors. Oh, well, I, I mean... It's just an awkward lingering of you go, you're sort of standing in front of the elevator and then you as the host. So, you know, if we've had an, an interview, I or some somebody from our company would press the elevator button and then we're kind of standing waiting for the elevator cut to come. And everyone who's been at this interview is just standing around. But the interview is over. There's not much small talk we can really make at this point. Right. Right, and uh, then eventually the the elevator comes and doors open, and then the the candidate or whoever it is will go into the elevator, press the floor that they want to go to or the ground floor, or whatever, and then again we're waiting for the doors to close, and you're all kind of bowing, ready to sort of for them to leave, but it's really awkward because the doors aren't closing and you're all sort of waiting, and then you sort of get up and then realize he hasn't gone yet, so you start bowing again. <laughs> And <laughs> yeah, so basically, uh, it's it's worst for the if you're a vendor and you go to visit a client, mm. and it's an elevator exit. So it basically means that the client's office is on a floor that's accessed by an elevator. Now, the the, the way that they want it to happen, the perfect, ideal, and wholly impossible outcome of the elevator exit mm. is that as the vendor. As you said, you know, the client will escort you to the elevator. They press the button for you so that you don't have to. How polite. Mm. And then the elevator will come. It will open regardless if there are people in the elevator or even if it's packed, which has happened to me once, Mm. which is very difficult. (laughs) You've got to go into the elevator backwards, stand in the middle, and the ideal outcome of the elevator exit is that they have to see your bowing head as the doors close. Right. Right, that is the that's the holy grail of the elevator exit, and it never ever happens. So basically, as you said, anything can go wrong. You know, you'll be standing there, you've got to mouth off a few set phrases as you leave your client. Right. You know, like um, you know, all this kind of, right. all that kind of stuff, and you've got to be saying that as you're bowing. So you'll be talking at the ground, yeah. and the elevator doors. You're not looking up. The elevator doors have to close so that they're seeing your bowing head as the final thing that they see. Mm. (laughs) More often than not, they're seeing your bowing body with your head up reaching out awkwardly to the close button because the the doors are kind of stalled there for too long. Or, you know, the other thing they'll see, of course, is all the other people in the elevator who are kind of 
kind of looking. I mean, they, everybody in Japan who's done this, right. they all know right. how awkward it is. So nobody's, everybody's just basically feeling sorry for you at that point. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, the, the, the timing is just so ridiculous and you've got to be kind of, yeah, the last thing that usually happens is that you'll be kind of like making a desperate grab for the close button, <laughs> but the doors will be closing because you timed it wrong. Mm. So the last thing they'll see is kind of like your half-raised arm and your your eye kind of kind of peeking up sideways, right. trying to look at the, where the close button is, yeah. even though the doors are closing anyway. It's just yeah, so I comfortable. suppose we've come from slightly different angles because I, you know, even when you first asked it, like my immediate assumption, I've not really been in the position where I'm visiting another company and... And doing the elevator exit, right? Um, I did visit <laughs> Nintendo a few times, but I never, never had to do that elevator exit. I always got sort of escorted right the way to the front door, so it was much easier. Right. There is one situation where it can work well, and that is where if you mm. go in with your boss. So if you, if you are visiting your client's building with your boss, mm. you enter. It's quite complicated to do, but you both got to enter the elevator backwards, and you've got to get on the side of your boss. Your boss will be standing in the middle of the elevator, both arms at his or her side. Oh, so you can be if you're on the button side, that's right. You're in. So that's right. So if, right. if you're if you're the subordinate, <laughs> then you can bow, but you can have your arm up right. on the close button. Right. But the client probably won't see it because you're on the side. Right. And they're <laughs> so, concentrating on the boss anyway. That's right. So in that kind of situation, it can work well unless you. You know, unless you botch up the timing of the close button or you press the wrong button, it's actually the open button that you're pressing. <laughs> that is a classic. Or, or the other classic one is is that you forget to press the button for the floor that you want to go to, so the doors yes. open again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is that is a common one. The doors open again, and you're kind of stuck there, sort of in half, coming out of bows, like whoops, oh, and then bow down again. <laughs> Uh, the elevator exit. Such a, oh. it's it's a beautiful. I mean, all you can do is all you can do is laugh at the at the <laughs> at the, the yeah, just the the wonderful comical sort of beauty and and ridiculousness and seriousness of Japanese business culture. It's it's just great. <laughs> if only if only we had something equivalent in the West. Uh really? Something that never goes right. That everybody knows the way it's supposed to go, but it just never goes right. Is this a segue? <laughs> Another classic uh, Station Thirteen segue. Uh, no, it's not, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, so, so any more plans for New Year? <laughs> I'm just going to talk about trains for two minutes. An hour later. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so, yes, New Year um, resolutions, Danny. Do you do you do resolutions? Is that a thing you do each year? Unfortunately, I think I fall into the bucket of like ninety-eight percent of the of the human race. That is that you know you you are all up on resolutions for December thirty-first to about right. January the seventh. But you do you do try? Do you, do you do you believe in the resolution idea, the the, the ideal embodied by New Year's resolution? Uh, yes, I think it's a wonderful thing. Mm. I kind of tend to make sort of like a resolution every month myself, mm. just because I know that. You know, if I make a resolution for this entire year, a year's a long time. <laughs> it's a long time, and and nothing. It's not really going to happen. I mean, okay. I, I can't think of many. Well, no, that's not true. I think I tend to be pretty conservative with my resolutions and make things that I can actually achieve. Mm. So, um, but uh, I, I think it's a wonderful idea, and the idea to uh, okay, it's the start of a new year, time for some fresh ideas and a fresh approach, mm. and um, you know, a fresh start, and you know. 
evaluating your situation and, and making some objectives for how to make things better mm. or achieving something that you want. So I, think, I think it's a great idea, but I'm very bad at it. Like, very bad at them, like a lot of people. Right. So how about you? Well, yeah. I mean, I think the the argument that you often hear leveled at, at New Year's resolutions by people who are saying that you know it's a dumb idea is why wait till New Year? You know that right. It's completely arbitrary. You could decide to make a change in your life at any point. So, you know, why, why wait around? And therefore, it's a dumb idea. But right. the new year is quite a good time to take stock. I mean, you're, you're very likely to be off work. You know, there's certainly where I am here, there's like a, a week's break between Christmas and New Year. Hmm. There's a long break in Japan as well. Yeah. Uh, so there's a good chance you'll have a bit of time off work to sort of sit back and, and think about things a little bit. You know, and a lot of things are coming to a close. A lot of things do come to a close at the end of the year. Mm. And a lot of things start up at the beginning of the year, you right. know, the business cycle and all the rest of it. Right. And so, you know, it does seem like a, a fairly good time to sit down. The thing is, I don't tend to go for, I don't feel obliged to set a resolution. Mm. So I take New Year's as a sort of opportunity to spend a bit of time thinking about how the year's just gone and, and you know, what I want to happen in the year to come. Hmm. And sometimes that will lead to my making a New Year's resolution. Hmm. And other times it won't. And I only make one if I think it's worth doing, if there hmm. actually legitimately is a thing that I want to do this year right. that I wasn't doing previously. And if I think it can be done. Right. So I try to avoid resolving to do something that I know I'm just going to give up. Right. And so a, a couple of examples of this are a few years ago, I think 2008 New Year, hmm. I made a resolution to keep track of my finances. Hmm. And it wasn't, the resolution was very importantly not to take better care of my finances or to spend less money or to save more money or anything like that. Mm. It was just be aware of what money I'm spending and, and on what, you know? Right. Because I can't, I don't feel like I can say, well, I'm going to save X amount per month when I don't know. I don't have the data to know whether I actually have that much money left over in a month to save. Right. Or whether, you know, I'm there are enough things that I'm currently wasting my money on that I could be using better, right? So mm. so the the first step is to, to get that data. And so my New Year's resolution for that year was to, to keep track. I installed a piece of software called Money Dance. Ah, yes. One of many similar pieces of software, but that's the one that I used. Yeah, I used that as well. It's very good, actually, Money Dance. I remember it. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's good, it's flexible, and it's cross-platform, which mm. now is not so important an issue for me because... I tend to use Macs everywhere, but back then I was switching. I had a Mac, but I also had a Linux machine, and I think I might have had a Windows machine as well for gaming. So I right. was switching between platforms a lot. So, you know, at that time I wanted something cross-platform. Hmm. So that's what I did. And for, for the whole of that year, I just made sure to, to keep everything in there. And it worked really well. Like, I felt like I by the end of the year I had a much better idea of, you know, what I was spending money on and what I was wasting money on. And, you know, and I also had gained this skill in 
being able to use this piece of software and keep track of things and you know know what graphs are useful to look at and things like that right so i i still use it now i stopped using it for a little while but i started again mm. and and i'm using it and you know so i would call that a success that is mm. sort of it's not dramatic but it did change something concrete in my lifestyle and it, you know gave me some data that was worth having i think so mm. so that was a, a good one and mm. another the probably the most successful resolution i've made is my new year's resolution for 2009 mm. which was to move to japan by the end mm. of the year which i did mm. uh, that was also you know that was the closest to a might not be achievable one right at the time when i was making it at the end of 2008 you know i didn't speak japanese i didn't know anyone in japan i had no you know, on what basis did I think I would be able to move Japan before the year was out? Right. That's amazing. But, you know, that that was a thing, you know, I decided to do it. Uh, I also had friends, uh, as you know, Liam. Yes. Uh, is a close friend. He he had said for years that he would move to Japan in April of 2009. Right. And he ended up moving there in August of 2009. So he was ah, he was very close. Very close. Mm. Um, and that was that was something he'd said for years and years. And so at the, this was at the beginning of 2009. I knew that he was planning on going that year as well. So I knew that I was going to be sort of watching him try and find his way over there right. and getting frustrated if I didn't do it as well. So I had right. that kind of to push me as well. Right. So anyway. I find it incredible, incredible that you actually remember the resolutions and the year that you made them. Do, do you keep note of it somewhere? No, I only remember... I mean, I remember those two because the Japan one, I know that I moved to Japan in 2009 mm. and I know that I fulfilled my resolutions. So right. I can I can then deduct right. that it was, it was the beginning of 2009. And the money dance one, I know that I was living in Brighton at the time and I only lived there for a year and a half. So it must have been the previous year, mm. okay. which is 2008. So I'm, 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 yeah, I'm deducing it as we talk. <laughs> I see. So what what are your resolutions for this year then? So for this year, I don't have very good ones. Okay. I've got two very simple ones, which are like one-shot things. This is the thing I am going to do, and I make no commitments from that point on. Right. And I have one slightly bigger one, but it's also secret. So <laughs> annoyingly, okay. I can't talk about it on the podcast. <laughs> okay. So the two simple ones, one of them is cliched, but I've been putting it off for a year anyway, so I, I, have, I want to do it. Uh, which is to join the gym. Oh, join the gym. I'm going to sign up. All I am promising to do is to sign up and go to the initiation session and and do it at least once. That's all I'm promising. I'm not saying I will do it all year. I'm not right. <laughs> I'm not making any real strong commitments. But, okay, let, let's be a bit stronger. By, by mid-February, I will have gone to the gym <laughs> at least once. <laughs> I know I'm very busy at the beginning of January. <laughs> set the bar low. That's 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 excellent. <laughs> I set the bar to be achievable. That's right. Um, very, very pragmatic. So mid-February, I will have... Oh, uh, that reminds me of my other uh, New Year's resolution, actually, which which must have been 2016. Right. Which was the handwriting one. Oh, okay. Which you, you knew me for. But that was, that was a New Year's resolution. I said I was going to improve my handwriting. And that was a sort of... Yes. I... I count that one as a half success mm. because I have, I think you, you've got my Christmas card so you can judge for yourself, but 
I've gained the ability to write in a nice style that I didn't have before. Right. Before I set that resolution, I couldn't have written that Christmas card that I sent you. Right. But that is still a thing I'm putting on. Like if I just sit down and jot down a note, mm. the ha- my handwriting for that has not changed at all. And the, the handwriting that is most natural to me right. is still a horrible illegible scroll i should probably just point out at this point to make it uh, clear to the listeners that uh, the christmas card that you sent me and that the style of writing that you're talking about that you were aiming for mm. is a very traditional beautiful looking cursive script right so uh <laughs> yeah i should probably just point that out it's like a calligraphic style right and it's the one right. where you've got the uh the pointed fountain pen nib with a, a slightly mm. flexible nib so that you can have thicker lines on the downstrokes and thinner lines on the upstrokes Right. And all of that. So that, you know, that is something I was incapable of doing before I set this resolution. Uh, Now I can do it when I put the effort in. I still think, Mm. you know, there's a a lot of work to go to make that actually, you know, if you compare my writing to the, you know, the people who can actually do it, there is a world of difference. But Mm. I'm still in a different universe from where I started. So so in that sense, it's a success. But Mm. I, you know, it hasn't actually fundamentally changed my natural, you know, quick writing. Right. Anyway, so 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 that was another one. So this this time I will go to the gym once by mid February, <laughs> and the other thing that I will do at least once, and I don't think I can set a date on this one because it depends on other people. Mm. But I will play Dungeons and Dragons. Nice. I would like to continue that if all goes well, but I cannot. Again, I'm I'm not only dependent on myself mm. there, so I don't think I can. You know, with my desire to set achievable goals if i'm reliant on other people i don't think i can you know i'm pretty sure i can get people together for one game of D. so right i will do that and hopefully more but we, we shall see do you, so do you have any resolutions i do actually oh and uh it it's kind of a i, I don't know if you call it a resolution because actually it's already started okay but it's something that i'm going to push forward with uh in um 2018 I'm actually uh, starting a music project. Oh, I call it a music project because it's, I guess you could call it kind of like a band. <laughs> I suppose you could. <laughs> well, it, I say I suppose you could because it's uh, it's electronic music. So it's basically me sitting here at the same position that I'm that I sit here, you know, making music for games. Except I'll be making music for myself for, I guess you could call it internet release. Mm. However, I'm actually collaborating with a very, very uh, old friend of mine from about 20 years ago, who is an excellent, excellent writer. All right. And uh, a writer as in a literary writer. Right. And um, yes, we're going to be collaborating on a music project. Mm -hmm. Currently, the working title is, this is a working title. Basically, we're going to make about five songs or so Mm -hmm. first, and then figure out. See where it goes from there. See where it goes from there. And basically... uh, uh, decide the band name and then get on with all of the internet stuff like the getting songs out onto Bandcamp and on you know, Twitter right, and SoundCloud right. and all that kind of stuff um, after we've actually worked out that this can work. Right. So you haven't got a name yet. Well, the working title is Alien Skies and Bionic Eyes and it is a very heavily science fiction influenced kind of idea. Basically, the the, the kind of music, it's going to be sort of uh, Detroit techno electro bass mm. kind of music, which is one of my uh, very favorite subgenres of electronic music mm. and the idea is very simple basically with every song there is going to be a 200 character short story 
that is released together with the song. Oh. So, for example, if you see it on Twitter, it will be 200 characters, which will be the short story followed by a link to the music. That's very cleverly aligned. How lucky for you that Twitter has increased its character count to 280. Yeah, it's specifically 200 because Twitter did increase their character count to 280. Right. But the idea is that uh, each one of these short stories will be obviously sourced from the same universe. Right. And the more songs that you hear and the more of these short stories that you read, the more of the pieces of the puzzle fit into place and you realise who is what and what people are doing and, and the significance of each one of these stories basically becomes more enjoyable the more of them that you read. Mm. And uh, as a kind of a, a little bit of audio imagery for the story that you're reading will come this accompanying track of Detroit Techno or Electro Bass or whatever, some kind of um, hybrid, you know, whatever. Who, who knows about the, what the, the genre will be called? But uh, yeah, there's basically my uh, this old friend of mine, he's, he's such a good writer and one of the good things about being at that level of skill is that he gets huge amount of enjoyment out of limitations. Mm. And, you know, uh, short stories to begin with, science fiction short stories are, you know, a fantastic sort of genre of literature. Mm. However, if it's so short that it's like 200 characters, he's, so this has already started and uh, he's put together a few vignettes as he calls them. Mm. And basically we're, we're going through, at the moment, basically, we're going through and reviewing the ones that he's made and sort of deciding, okay, which one do we want to start off this whole universe with? And uh, they're excellent. You know, he's really, really good at packing in so much evocative imagery into just 200 characters. Mm. And so just sort of trying to decide at this stage which one of these will go with, uh, at which point I'll start making music. And, yeah, when we get to about five songs, that's when we'll actually release it and we'll, we'll do all the social media stuff and all that and yeah. see how it goes so that's the objective for 2018 is to to move this along no, it sounds like a good one if you can fit the link into 24 characters then you could have 256 characters for your story true that'd be even better because power of two true <laughs> true but, um, i think um <laughs> my this previous boss that i mentioned that was that uh, schooled me that my first very large japanese corporation and all that stuff that i was mentioning earlier mm. he was uh, a very inspiring person i was very very privileged to be um, mentored by him in business Japanese business acumen but anyway mm. one of the sayings that he used to love saying is there's no time no time better to make yourself more busy than when you're extremely busy right yeah basically meaning that it sounds completely obvious when you put it this way but the, the more busy you are the more you're actually achieving and if you've got like for example nothing happening mm. you'll kind of sort of drop down into this lethargic kind of apathetic sort of you know lumpy mode where right. you just sort of don't feel like doing anything right however if you're very very busy and you actually don't have time for things you will actively go out and and make time. shift things around so that you can fit time in and so the more busy you are you know the more productive obviously because you're getting more done because you're busy but right. I mean, it sounds completely obvious but no no but it is but it's also counterintuitive right because you're you know, how am i going to find time to do this when this is the time when i'm doing all these right. other things which is exactly yeah. exactly and um yeah basically uh i thought to myself this is something that i've always wanted to do because i have you know I, i'm very lucky to have all the equipment to do this kind of stuff right uh, as in produce electronic music and then release it I guess commercially, I suppose you could call it if you want to call it that. It's basically internet band kind of thing. But how are you going to do it? Are you going to because a lot of bands do like there's a, there's a few different approaches that bands take these days, mm. and there's the sort of set price 
kind of approach. Mm. And then there's like the, the pay what you like approach where you just put it out and people can download it for free if they want or they can pay however much they want to pay. Mm. Uh, and I think there's probably some others as well. But do you have any ideas about how you're going to do that? No, not yet. So basically all of that kind of thought we're going to start thinking about at around song number five or number six. Okay. Once once we've realized that, yes, this this can work and this, this could be something kind of special that other people might enjoy. Mm. One of the, the core sort of guidelines that we've laid down for this whole project is that it has to be enjoyable for the both of us. Right. So Yeah, otherwise it's no point. Exactly. So basically what that means if we put it out there entirely for free, completely, you know, free as in free beer free, uh-huh. <laughs> then uh, if there's absolutely no disappointment in that, that, for example, it gets extremely popular, which I'm, I, I highly doubt that it will, but if it actually gets extremely popular and we're making no money off it at all mm-hmm. and we're thinking, oh, you know, maybe if we'd somehow added some commercial side into this, we could actually be making a, you know, a nice little uh, bit of compensation for what for the time we're putting into this. You know, we don't want to be at that point ever. Right, right. Meaning, you know, so it has to be all about so it's basically... it's been worth, like... How'd you put it? Yeah, like its own reward, right? Yeah, exactly. So for for my part, uh, actually sitting down and having a reason to write a consistent genre of music mm. is something that I've always wanted. And that's actually, it's a funny thing to say that, but that's actually what it's like writing music for games because, you know, you tend to have to be a bit of a chameleon and, and doing all different kinds of things. Right. Uh, but actually being able to say, right, I'm going to be a band and I'm going to pick a genre and I'm only going to write this kind of music and get very good at writing this kind of music mm. is something that you don't really have much of a, an opportunity to do when you make music for games. And so mm. that's something that I've always wanted to do. So picking this genre and um, basically uh, developing a style, developing a sound out of this genre, is uh, that's the enjoyment for me. And, and for him, you know, uh, working with these strict limitations of 200-character snippets or vignettes of a larger story and a larger universe a fictional universe mm. uh, is something that really excites him a lot. So, uh, yeah, the, the business nas- business and commercial aspects of things we'll think about later. Okay, cool. Yeah, wow, sounds like a good project. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll see how it goes. We'll uh, Much like Station 13, you know, you and I, when we started this as well, we thought, okay, we'll do 10 episodes first. Right, right. Uh, we, we were releasing them as we were going along, but we, we thought we'd do 10 and then figure out whether or not it was something that we wanted to continue with. Right. Uh, and I think I think that's a good... It's a good approach to sort of decide, okay, we're going to do this many, force yourself through that many, even if it's not going as well as you hoped, and and then at the, after that, actually evaluate whether or not it's worth continuing. I think it's a, right. it's a good approach. Because you can sit around this. planning for hours and hours and years mm. and never do anything, right? Right. Until you actually start doing it, you don't really know how it's going to turn out. Therefore, Danny, you should probably make your resolution to visit the gym for at least... Six months. <laughs> and then figure out whether it's worth continuing isn't, or not. Isn't the conclusion to be drawn there that my resolution should be to, to visit a few times and then see how it goes and decide, oh, I see you're saying six months is a few times. That's right. You know, I did used to go to the gym in Kyoto. <laughs> I'm not, this isn't a first time for me. No. I do know what I'm I'm doing. You know what you're doing, yeah. I'm, I'm sure. I do, but there's no, I'm, I, I think this is going to be more disappointing because the best thing about the gym in Kyoto, obviously, was the warm bath and sauna area that they had all right for when you're finished and i I did find over the course of my months going there that the proportion of the time that i spent in the gym 
as compared to the proportion of time that I spent in the sauna in the bath <laughs> relaxing afterwards <laughs> shifted over time right <laughs> i'll be uh, curious to hear your impressions of the uh, the differences between an american gym and a, and a japanese gym slash sauna yeah we'll see how it is i mean it sounds like there's going to be quite a few different things on offer at this one so well all the best to uh, for your resolutions and uh, we also wish all the best to our uh, listeners and all your resolutions and please let us know what your resolutions are on the uh, official Station 13 Reddit. On the Reddit. None of the unofficial ones. No. Don't use them. Don't use them. They're rubbish. They're, they're not legit. <laughs> oh, there is only one. There is actually literally only there one. There is only one. There is. <laughs> Let us know what your resolutions are and, uh, you know, it would be great to... Uh, maybe we could, like, do a catch-up session in, like, six months where I can ask you, have you been going to the gym? You can ask me, how's my music project going? And we can also ask our listeners how their respective uh, objectives through the year are, are tracking. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> or maybe not. 